0: Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by CityCo, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from CityCo, and today we're talking about St Anne's, the heart of the city. We're in St Anne's church, upstairs, and I'm joined by Nigel Ashworth, the rector of the church, and by Roger Ward, owner of the Chop House chain, whose original venue, Tom's Chop House, backs onto the churchyard. Starting with the church, Nigel? Yeah. What's the difference between a rector, a pastor, a... All those oh other no. a reverend, all those other names.
1: Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Well, I'm the rector now. That's my office here in this church. So that is the office of the incumbent of this parish. I'm the parish priest here, but it happens to be rector. What's the difference between a rector and a vicar? You really don't need to know. Okay, no <laughs> we'll probably leave that. And we'll there's, go there's <laughs> no difference, but it's just historic. Okay.
0: Um, starting with the church, then, when does it date from?
1: How's it evolved over time? Right, the foundation stone was laid in 1709 but the church was consecrated in 1712 and it was in fact built and people do find this hard to really get their head around it it was built in a field and when you look at the church now and what's all around us that it is actually hard to understand isn't it but it was built in a field which was called at the time acres field and had been used an annual market which is now the name of an office
0: block just over from you in that classic way that um, apple tree gardens actually means houses have been built on top of apple trees doesn't it?
1: that's right yeah but acres field and the, the, uh, I, I think i've read somewhere they used to grow carrots in it can you believe that i don't think there's any carrots do you growing use that in now. your sermons occasionally actually i don't think i've ever even yeah. mentioned the carrots i i need
2: to say one little thing about Acresfield. acres field yeah. field was designated as manchester's farmers' market in perpetuity by King Henry III in
1: 1221. Excellent. Get that for a fact. So
0: it's the right place for Manchester Markets to be running.
1: It is. So the church was founded uh, in a uh, – I'm getting the date wrong – 1712, and it had a huge congregation, uh, but the people who came here uh, were really coming from really all around. Uh, and in particular from what was really the township at that time, which is the area around today's cathedral. So that's our original congregation. And then the city grew up all
0: around this church. Yeah, we talked to um, Jonathan Schofield a couple of weeks back about the history of King Street. Yeah. So at around the same period, through George II into George III, we're seeing the establishment of um, what were the beautiful domestic houses that have either become retail or then became Banking, or then however they developed at that point. Yeah. So were they brought here because the church was already here? Is is that how they started to develop?
1: I think it's all part of the same idea. There was an actually there was an act of parliament in 1708, which allowed the church to be built, and it also stipulated things that you'd be surprised about. For example, the width of what's now St Anne's Square is there in the act of parliament. Also. That we've always got to have access through Saint Anne Street with our horses to get to church. <clears> That's <throat> in the Act of Parliament; it's not been repealed. Um, so, have you ever had to enforce
0: that in your time?
1: Well, sometimes we <laughs> get a bit frustrated when the road o- road closure orders come in, but let's just gloss over it. Um, yeah, I, I, so I'm I'm entitled by law to tie my horse up outside here. I think that's something you need to do, to be honest. <laughs> I should try it sometime, <laughs> see if anybody objects. Yes. H- uh, then how has it evolved over
0: time from the early 18th century?
1: Well, uh, what happened was the city grew up and uh, this was the fashionable heart of it, Town Square. People were living here in these beautiful townhouses and King Street. But then, as the city grew, and the industrialization of Manchester really got underway, not precisely in this area, but a little distance away. What happened was that a huge middle class grew up, but an even bigger working class grew up. And the poorer people were living in very poor conditions. We can read about some of this in, for example, Mrs. Gaskell or Engels describing the conditions of poor people. The middle class people then moved out to places like Victoria Park. Uh, eventually, the poorer people were cleared out of some very bad living conditions, and our city centre became the first city centre in this country to become a pure business district area. And this was how we ended up. Come the early 1990s, where nobody lived in our city centre. Since then, everything has seen a complete change of uh, direction and an immense uh, regeneration. So. Our position today uh, kind of flows from the past, uh, but I guess the people from the past would be incredibly surprised to find out what's going on in Manchester now.
0: Though interestingly, possibly many of those people who would have been around in the 1810s, 1820s, wouldn't have been surprised by the, the level of of jewellers, for instance, and and actually the the, the sort of very high-end stores that are around it, because that's exactly what was
1: happening in this area, wasn't it? That's right. And in fact, the woman, and I think it's interesting for people to hear that it was a woman who paid for this church to be built, Uh, she was a member of the Moseley family, she was the lord of the manor, she was called Lady Anne Bland, she was married to an extraordinarily wealthy Yorkshireman who was also a member of Parliament. She was absolutely the icon of fashion of her time, but she also had a very highly developed taste. So down in her house, more or less somewhere towards uh, the far end of Deansgate, uh, towards the Hume end, she had, believe it or not, at the turn of the 17th, 18th century, a collection of classical Roman and Greek sculptures. And that tells you something about her personal taste and education for a woman of our time and then bringing that to create a very elegant church building.
0: And um, during all those changes over that 300 years how did the congregation change as the city changed during that time or was it always uh, a church for the higher end? Well we're, we're
1: not a church for the higher no, end. We're, you, we're you, you know what, know what I mean. I know what you mean. A large and fashionable congregation. Um, It had all kinds of people, but by the time that the the population was moving out, probably this church and all the churches in the city center, because they had built quite a few of them, they were all struggling. Actually, there was another church in St. Mary's Parsonage, just a few hundred yards from here, and the two parishes were merged by Act of Parliament. And basically, they were saying, which one of these two churches are we going to demolish they demolished St Mary's say, and survived because the other church got dry rot. Uh, is that Parsonage Gardens now? Then? Parsonage Gardens now, yeah. Um, now, over the road from you, or just around the corner, you had the Cross Street Chapel, of course.
0: Yeah. Um, historically, what were relations like between the church and the chapel?
1: Well, um, in, I'm trying to get the date right, uh, 1662, there was a a terrible event, really, across the whole country. Uh, The clergy and the churches were all required to swear a new oath of loyalty to the new king. And some of them just couldn't do it because of their conscience. And so they lost their jobs. And one guy was down at the collegiate church, now the cathedral, he was kicked out from there. And the Manchester people were so enraged by this because he was also a noted preacher and they liked their preaching in those days that they built a chapel for him and that became the Cross Street Chapel. And really, uh, Anne Bland and her friends who built this place, they were attached to that. But when he died, uh, they wanted to basically establish somewhere which was more substantial. And that's how the church and the chapel grew up, so we've kind of rubbed along ever since together. And I,
2: I love the fact that it was called, when uh, Henry Newcombe founded it, it was called the dissenters'
1: meeting house. Yeah, they were dissenting because they'd been chucked out, uh, out at the cathedral. It, it somehow or other seems, seems to resonate even now, doesn't it? It's a very Manchester thing, isn't it? Yeah, it I, is. think, I
0: think very much so. Um, so, in terms of the building, If you walk in today, apart from the PA system and various other things, and the heating system, is
1: the building broadly the
0: same as it was in in the 18th century?
1: Well, yes, I mean, the, the actual walls are the same and all of that, the way the windows are configured, but what you see today is very different because when this was built, it was really a great big preaching house. The pulpit was bang in the middle, very, very, very tall, and all the seats faced the pulpit. And of course, they were very suspicious of anything fancy in the church, anything you know with an image in it, like a stained glass window type of picture. so all the windows were plain and it was a very sober kind of place really and today, what we see is a very different church which has been affected by the way the Victorians saw churches. They wanted the whole church to be a kind of immense celebration of of uh, art and Beauty, and so they remodel things, and so you come in today, and you're really seeing an 18th century church that the Victorians have, what they would have said, improved. Okay, and then as you
0: get the urban areas growing around it, and the retail growing, shops growing around it first, and um, banks coming, private houses obviously. Um, I mean, when it was originally constructed with the fields, you, you had a huge space with graveyards. I, I assume. Um, so, what happened
1: to the graveyards? Well, there's one graveyard, and it's it's still here. It's right around the whole church, and it still is our churchyard. Uh, and Originally, they had railings and a very, very beautiful gates. Sadly, we lost them. Um, when the churchyard was full in the 1840s, they must have debated what to do about that. <clears throat> they wanted really to create a more open space feeling around the church so it was uh, agreed with the city council that the council would help with the paving of the churchyard and so on the railings, the beautiful railings were removed and the open space around, which you see today, that was created in that way. So the gravestones are still there they're under the pavement they've been lowered and overpaved Always good to know
0: um, you're surrounded by the past everywhere that you walk we in the are, city. as well. We are, yeah. And yeah. I suppose it's more obvious here than it is in an awful lot of other places in the city, actually. It it's is, yeah. That history. Um, bringing it up to the present day, obviously um, the church still sees itself and still performs a very useful fun- function in terms of 21st century cities. Um, so even with a great historical place like this, I mean, what the challenges of opportunities of being this um, historical icon in the center of a 21st century with all its challenges and opportunities?
1: Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I mean, just looking at the numbers of visitors we get for a start, um, we tried to do a count in 2015, and we found that 46,000 people came in to visit the church, which is a lot of people. So just dealing with that is uh, quite important for us. We want to be welcoming uh, and give people a very positive experience of coming. But then there are times which, you know, are difficult times. And people want to come into the church, for example, recently after the horrible attack we had on the Manchester Arena. I mean, we don't know how many people came in, but it, was, it must have been in the tens of thousands. So we were really busy. <clears throat> we are always busy in times like Christmas. But sometimes people just want to come in and just be quiet. There's also a big place for concerts. Lots and lots of music takes place here. And that's because the 18th century builders bequeathed us a beautiful acoustic in this building. So we try to adapt to what's going on around us in all kinds of ways. And really, the expectations of visitors in today's world are very different. So you can come in on Saturday morning and sit down at the back of the church with a cup of tea and look at things. You know, in the 18th century, they would have thought that was outrageous. Blasphemous having a cup of tea. Maybe, even that, yes. um, I mean, I think certainly
0: in, in the wake of uh, the May 22nd attack, obviously because nobody could be close to the arena, the, the focus um, for the tributes was yeah. outside. So we saw very much the um, the continuing function of a church in a city in times of tragedy and probably will continue to be. I mean, there have been yeah. conversations about where a permanent um, memorial will be. Um But, I mean, that must have been one of those situations where you're almost working long days because you know you've got a lot of people who are very distressed coming in and and having to actually deal with something totally unexpected in those situations.
1: Everybody was taken by surprise. I mean, absolutely everybody. And nobody can have predicted how it would all unfold once this horrible event had happened. But what we did was essentially the whole church community rallied around so that we could keep the church open. And we had the church open... You know, up to 12 hours a day, welcoming people in. And really, sometimes it was just a matter of letting them be. But sometimes, you know, people actually want to sit down and have a talk with you. Uh, a lot of people came in just to sit and be quiet and be very thoughtful. Others came to just have a good cry. So that's important, to be a place where that can happen.
0: It was a very moving occasion, very moving week. and we afterwards, was. not Yeah. Um, Roger, I'm not sure that anybody questions the role of a pub in the 21st century. (laughs) However, um, going back to the beginning again, what's the history of of Tom's? Um, How did it start?
2: I've been fascinated listening to what Nigel said there, and it it did occur to me, doing a wee bit of uh, mental maths, that uh, this church has been here for 305 years, and for just under half of that, For 150 years, Mr. Thomas's has actually been trading alongside it. So we've obviously had a fairly lengthy relationship, and I suspect we've shared some what we might call customers over that period of time as well. Uh, The interesting thing for me about the two chop houses, the two original chop houses that are so close together in the centre of Manchester, is there's a family connection. So Tom's was founded by Mr. Thomas Stud in 1867, and his brother Samuel founded Sam's Chop House. I have to say that I was contacted only last year by a gentleman called Samuel Stud III, who is the grandson of Sam. And at that point in time, his father, who was also called Samuel James Stud, was still alive living in uh, Sark in the Channel Isles. He was born to the original Sam when he was 70 years old. But the two chop houses were originally run by brothers in the, uh, around 150 years ago in the Victorian do we era. do you know
0: if that was fraternal competition that caused them to set up so close to each other? It
2: was fraternal friendship, actually, and actually when Sam returned to London to pursue a, co- a career in the law, his brother Thomas ran uh, the two chop houses for a period of time. It was, essentially, was a family affair, so Thomas Studd founded Mr. Thomas's in 1867. He ran it until 1881. When he died, he left it to his wife Sarah. She ran it until 1896, and then their daughter, also named Sarah, ran it until until it then had a little a little twist in its history. It closed for for a couple of years to be rebuilt and restored. So the building that you see now is doesn't date back 150 years. The building as it as it is now dates back to uh, 1901. And there is a fascinating little twist there, which. Uh, always amuses me and that is that thomas's as we see it now this beautiful little terracotta jewel the grade two listed building was built on the proceeds of the world's first oil refinery so there that's is. that's
1: amazing that's extraordinary
2: <laughs> so th- this is true uh, I've, I've done the research but i've been guided by our superior landlord is a lady called um, miss arabella binney her grandfather built tom's House. And the story there is, he, if you look at the uh, on the side of the building, you'll see that you'll see mention of James Binney House. So clearly, he was James Binney. He happened to be a barrister, but he had also inherited a reasonably large sum of money from his father, who was a gentleman called Edward Binney. It's well worth googling Edward Binney because he he funded the world's first oil refinery, which actually was established in Bathgate, which is in West Lothian, so between Edinburgh and Glasgow. And would you believe it? They were refining shale, the gas out of shale, and the, uh, not the gas, the oil out of shale, and the oil was paraffin oil, so it wasn't actually for petrochemicals and internal combustion engines, but Victorian England, I suppose, was the time when the, the light first came to the people. It was wasn't an early it? fracking. It, early fracking, and it was about producing paraffin oil for gas lamps. So at that beautiful, exquisite little terracotta building uh, was built on the proceeds, the proceeds of uh, paraffin gas oil,
0: and presumably one of the best built, uh, best lit buildings in the city. At I the imagine it what would probably assume? would have been at
2: the day, yeah, which is ironic given how, how useless the lighting is. Now. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then, how did it evolve over time? So, it was rebuilt in the early it was, early it was, 20th it was
2: rebuilt and restored in the current style. Uh, the interior and the exterior, certainly ground floor level, are essentially. Unchanged. We 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 try and live with the history, and we try and celebrate its history. We provide at the beginning of the menus, you know, little things for people to read about the building and to understand its life. And um, but we are we are hoping that next year we'll be able to f- to finalise the the last part, if you like, of the restoration of Tom's to its to its origins. Because learning from Miss Binney, her granddad created Tom's with a gentleman's dining club on the first floor. So the office that I, that I uh, work out of at the moment has got a beautiful oak parquet floor, and that was laid originally because it was actually a trading floor, and it was a gentleman's club with no name. So we're, we're hoping that we'll be able to convert it back and create an v- exquisite historical private dining room on that floor, just to complete the restoration of Tom's. I was gonna say, you can't create a gentleman's club in this day and age. Can you, you cannot see? create that. Well, certainly not that type of gentleman's club. Well. No.
0: I'll possibly do that after the recording. Find out what that what that was. Um, why did you take over, and when did you take
2: over? Um, it's a long story, really. But I uh, I I used to work in advertising, and in 1999, I lost my mother-in-law, my dog, and my dad in the space of six weeks. So, uh, in a very convoluted way, I left the agency that I ran to carry my godfather's tenor saxophone around Havana, Cuba when he was recording an album with the Buena Vista Social Club. And I came back from it intending to create an advertising agency and I stumbled into a pub. (laughs) (coughs) That's roughly speaking that all of that is true. Uh, So it was an accidental thing and I always intended to perhaps pursue other things as well, but I kind of fell in love with the houses.
0: Had you been a drinker there before?
2: I'd been a customer, and I had a friend who uh, who ran one of them, and it it was purely friendship that drew me in, uh, and I like them, and I, I guess like most people in Manchester, we, you know, we've got so many wonderful new things in the city that we all enjoy and we celebrate, but sometimes you need to think about the things that have always been here. You know, Tom's, this this staggered me when we were uh, we were doing our research. When Tom's opened its doors, the back door faced St. Anne's Church, which is the literal center of Manchester, the place from which all milestones and signage, mileage. If you're in New York City and you're whatever it is, 1,000 miles from Manchester, you're from the Tower of St. Anne's Church. And the front door of Tom's opened onto Manchester's Town Hall. So it really was at the very heart of the city in the days, in the Victorian era when it opened. And I find that fascinating because it... You know, we've talked about sharing the same people from the congregation of, uh, of St. Anne's. The town hall was literally over the road. All of the great merchants <laughs> and financial people of the city were customers in the chop-out. It's funny, we have thousands of restaurants and probably tens of, hundreds of thousands of covers now, but go back 150 years, and there were a very small number of places where people, mainly men, came to do their business, and the chop-houses were two of them.
0: And again, as we found out talking to Jonathan Schofield, the amount of money that was in Manchester at the late Victorian period is probably not being equaled by many cities in the world now. Um, oh. And so that idea of coming in on your Tuesday and Friday to settle up your accounts, go to the exchange, have a chop with your mates and then go upstairs for a drink or whatever. Maybe also visit a church, possibly. Um, but also the ladies who would then be perambulating up and down King Street and with very valuable uh, shops at I, the time. Yeah. It, it's actually hard for us to grasp how much money there was around it
2: uh, It's funny, isn't it? I remember being taught history at school, actually in Birmingham, in the 1970s, and being told about the wealthiest city in the world. In 1845, Manchester was the most powerful city in the globe. And I find it, it's wonderful because we're talking about the era that we're discussing now. We're talking about that Victorian era where it was the world's greatest city, where Britain's first telephone exchange was created, where the corporate, you know, all the, the, the first that we're perhaps becoming increasingly familiar with, all of those things originated from that period. And it was a really remarkable city absolutely remarkable city and what i am so pleased about is that people like yourself are beginning to try and unearth more of this history because it is a really modern vibrant place now and you look around and you see plenty of glass but actually there is a real story in the heart of this city and people need to know more about it i think
0: and, and i think again in one of those interesting cycles of history um, when you look at the height of manchester uh, walking around the city you would have Um, the cultural attractions the theatres and so on you would have retail which you would perambulate about and look at the big windows but you would also have food and drink Everywhere. You, yeah. It was seen as a dare. Um Food and drinks sort of got driven out to a certain extent and is now coming back in, in a particularly big way. But actually the cityscape that we're doing, OK, the bigger plate glass build it, uh, windows than we used to have, perhaps, yeah. um, but actually we're getting to that mixed use again that we had 130,
2: 140 years ago. Well, it's, it's remarkable. You asked the question about the houses that grew up around the well, world. Guess what? Mr Thomas's chop house... Began as a house that was converted into a public house that was converted into a chop house that became uh, the institution that it is today. And what I love, right next door to us now, in the in the building uh, on Tom's right when you're looking at Cross Street. We know as the old Tommy Hilfiger building, that's now been converted into residential. We've got residential uh, apartments uh, diagonally across the traffic lights. We've got residential apartments being built to our left above Sam's Chop House, is becoming residential. And it is wonderfully exciting to see people coming back to live in the city. And and we're not a work community, we're
1: a, a living community as well. And that, I find that really exciting. I don't think I've ever told you this, Roger, but you know, I, I think my father was one of your customers at the chop houses, both of them. Because my dad, when I was a small boy, was a trader on the floor of the Royal Exchange. They were called salesmen. That was what they were called. Everybody who was on the Royal Exchange, they're all men, uh, had to wear bowler hats. And I remember getting to serious bother when I sat on my dad's bowler hat in the back of the car. Um, But uh, I remember him bringing me here. I was very small showing me everywhere. I'm pretty sure he showed me the church. And, of course, they would all go out for lunch, probably principally to Sam's, because at that point, I think Tom's was very much a um, a wine place. I've, I've got it right. Tom, Tom's is
2: where Frank Stanley will a bit. Well, the, so the story is Tom's was actually built not only by James Binney. He had a partner, and his partner was... Frank Stanley Willoughby. The reason why I call him Frank Stanley is that's the name that's on the first license because you always have middle names as well. And Frank Willoughby was, at that time, a builder and a publican. So he actually ran Tom's in 1901, and his name is on the license until the Second World War because it was in Tom's that he originally founded Willoughby's wine business. He ran it out of Tom's, then he moved it over to Tib Lane, and, and that's a wonderful connection. We actually serve J.W. Lee's beers now, and J.W. Lee's are now the owners of the remnants of the, of the Willoughby's business. And it's funny how the, the histories of all the different families interconnect still I
1: remember buying wine in that Willoughby's shop uh, on Cross Street. Yeah.
2: And where I sit is literally where Frank Willoughby used to conduct his business from.
1: Right. Now, Roger, are there any issues in
0: having your terrace back onto the churchyard?
2: Um, Issues are plenty, we have a lot of fun with it. Uh, to discover that originally, that well originally and now, as Nigel said, it, that space was a graveyard, was a, a bit of a, a worry for us, back 15, 16, 17, 18 years ago when we originally began to trade outside. The The reality is though that the church have a wonderfully progressive attitude to their community. They encourage us to do a job out in the churchyard and to do it well i love the relationship we have with nigel because nigel nigel will come around and give us a ball okay? if we overstep the mark or we do things <laughs> wrong nigel can come around sometimes and be very nice without using that language sometimes they come <laughs> around and be oh, very nice be. and sometimes they come around and admonish us but the reality is we're all aware that we live in a community we try our best to do a good job on occasion Customs might do things that that cross a line but uh, But actually, the reality with regard to issues, no, because we work together. We have a really good working relationship. Nigel is encouraging us to do more and better things in the churchyard. Uh, And at least I'd like to think that we're responsible and we try and do do it right. Uh, And I think that probably helps Nigel because we we work well Mm -hmm. in partnership on it. But, you know, the issues are the normal issues that we all face in the city and... You know, we don't need to get into talking about rough sleepers and and litter and things like that because they're the real, they're our day-to-day issues. The issues aren't issues of relationship between us and the church. They're more about how we do things responsibly and how we try our best to sort of navigate life at the heart of this city. Because actually, the things that come up, crop up and uh, influence us are not necessarily things that we've created. I mean, who knew that the memorial, the people would create the memorial for the bomb outside the church. That was a wonderfully significant uh, thing. And I felt so proud because I have friends in other countries. You know, They'll be phoning up and saying, is that where your office is?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that we always talk about St. Anne's as the heart of the city. But that incident actually demonstrated that it's more than a form of words and it's more of a
2: geographical
0: um, conceit. It actually does feel to people like the heart of the city because that's where you
1: need to go and express this. I think people do treat it like that and and uh you know we we're aware of that and we want to do, take care of that for people uh, we've got a lot of work to do as i think you know with this church building You've got to raise a vast amount of money we've already renovated the tower put on a new roof you don't go for 305 years without things getting a bit worn um and and live through an industrial revolution and an awful lot of smoke being belched out of chimneys along the way but we're we're working towards that and we want and we find we can uh do this work you know we want to work with our neighbors we believe that we will get a lot further if we work in partnership with other people and that is you know common sense really so we uh, have a partnership with the chop house uh with with roger and his colleagues uh, and we seek to build that because We would like this church, our aim is for the church when we've got all the exterior stonework and other things done. The aim is to make this place an absolute showcase for the city and for the church. And in order for that to really work, we need the immediate area around us to work as well. We think in fact, we're going to be uh, of benefit to the immediate area. We think we are anyway. Because if we weren't here, there'd be somehow, be somehow everything would be a bit reduced. And, you know, maybe these jeweler shops around here probably wouldn't sell as much jewelry because kind of we add to the environment. Well, we think there are ways we can improve the environment. For example, the way that King Street links up with, Saint Anne's Square. We think that could be kind of more integrated. There could be more kind of footfall through. Uh, how to make that happen how to encourage it anyway to happen. You know, that partly depends on the partnership that we've got and the, the plans we've got to develop things and improve things. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, we love working in partnership with, with Roger. Mind you, we've had to work quite hard about various things, Roger. And, uh, I think we, we've we, we both share
2: the same ambitions, which is yeah. we understand that we're transient, we're passing through. Uh, And I think we'd both like to leave St Anne's churchyard and the St Anne's area, the greater St Anne's area, in a better place than that which we found it. If we could create a tourist attraction of the church and the churchyard, if we can bring many more visitors to this place, if we can make sure there's a little bit of history in Manchester as well as all the sort of iconic and attitudinal and music-related things, I'd feel really proud of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, this particular area, I mean, around St Anne's Place, um, it's continued to thrive and hasn't really suffered. We, we're starting to see, just as we did with King Street five, six years ago, but that's on its way back up now um, in terms of empty shops. We're starting to see around St Anne's Square more generally a few empty spaces. And But what that's leading to is is more development and certainly f and is looking in the area because uh, it's one of the few areas where you can actually have seating outside and being made a real feature. So... That thing that you 're building together both in terms of tourist attraction and it, well, both of them are tourist attractions actually aren 't they but also um, thriving f and b business um, hopefully can be enhanced by a huge number of other businesses that are coming in and seeing exactly the same things and it 's quite interesting what's happening with the exchange and the developments around there that I think the the new new owners of the exchange definitely see the history as something that 's absolutely key to the attractions it 's not just about rental yield because this area is It's so important in terms of the history of the city.
1: It also uh, feels different when you come into this bit of Manchester. You know, Manchester is a wonderful city centre with its different quarters. Uh, And Roger and I have actually discussed this quite a bit. We think this should be known as the St Anne's Quarter. It actually is the first conservation area in planning terms that Manchester had. And we think it ought to be kind of given a bit more recognition. We'd like to see it develop. But it's no good just saying that to, for example, our council, which gets bombarded with lots and lots of requests here, there and everything, everywhere. You know, we need to be showing that we're making something of it. And one of the things that we are conscious that we need to do is in fact, to do more linking up with our neighbors and to work more in partnership, for example, with City Co, uh, different things that the city council does, because People come to the city nowadays for all kinds of things. Yes, they come here to work, we know that, but they come here to play. They come here for cultural activities. They want to kind of touch something real, something that's maybe from the past, something that's got a sort of texture. It needs to be explained in some ways to people, they need to get a sense of what it is, and they want to do that because it it actually enhances life it's enlivening, it makes you more conscious of aspects of, of, your, of our existence that we share. For instance, having a lovely meal in Tom's, in this beautiful, beautiful place, which is obviously uh, very historic. When you're inside, you realise that right away. Um, you know, it's kind of different. I mean, it's lovely to go to all kinds of places to eat, but if you go there, you're going to a place which has kind of been serving house food for a long time, but perhaps never better than it does now.
2: Do, do you know what I'd love to do, Nigel, no, just listening to what you said there? Mm. Vaughan's doing something here; is explaining the history of our city to people. It, I, I do an annual trip to a small town in Georgia in the south of the United States. It's called Athens. And they are, like all American towns, so incredibly modern, dynamic. They knock a block down and build new concrete stuff. But what they have got is beautiful... Uh, bronze signage around the city that explains any single bit that's of any type of history. And history for them could be something that's only 50 years old. But every single thing, the historical trails and pathways are explained always. And I think it'd be really great if we can embrace this and not just leave it to business people, not just leave it to Citico. just make more of our heritage trails in the city, linking, you know, finding ways to link together the, the churches and the places of, of interest. You know, think about it. 1845, this was the world's greatest city. Why can't you wander around and do a world's greatest city tour? You know, the type of things that people would have seen yeah. in, in, in that era. For me, I, I, it's fascinating because you can come from any developed country in the world. And it began here. And if that's you're true. talking about the industrial, so-called industrial revolution that created modern society, it all began here. And I think that that's interesting to everybody. This this isn't just a music town. It's not just a football town. It's not just a modern, vibrant economy. It's got a place in the in in the history of every single person in the world.
0: I, th- I think if there was a positive that came out of maybe twenty second, um, the the way obviously the people reacted was was astonishing. But um, in terms of of putting on. Uh, the Media around the world, St. Anne's, I c- certainly I, I had a few people who haven't been to this bit of Manchester, sort of didn't actually realize the history because we make so, so much of the new stuff that's going yeah. up. And if they did realize the history, it was about the warehouses in the northern quarter and other areas that look like the back streets of New York because they were there. That's yeah. what New York was modeled on. Um, so, uh, you know, there is a positive that possibly comes out of it that actually in terms of the reputation and knowledge around this amazing area of the city, has been vastly increased by but, uh, the, let's the also face it, that.
2: This is one of the prettiest parts of Manchester. It is just yeah. different in its scale, in the stone. The church itself is a beautiful building. But there's a proportion to St Anne's. You know, St Anne's Square, which used to be Acres Field, which was this beautiful square of, of homes... Still retains the same proportions. It may have different, you know, usage nowadays. It's got yeah. different people living and working in it, but it's still, it's still one of the jewels
1: in, in would be in any city's crown, but certainly in Manchester's. It's on a very kind of human scale, and that's something that I think is reflected in the church. You know, uh, people really love our church. They love it. They love what it's like inside. They come in, and they're thrilled by it. And the people who come in, you know, every week not just congregation members but people who come in during the week every week. And what they like about it I think is that it's it's kind of very grand but it's not kind of massive it's um it's beautifully proportioned it's accessible. And accessible it's on a human scale but it's grand. It kind of lifts you up a bit architecturally and I think this area does that. It's it not doesn't intimidating t- t- like a cathedral can do. No, be no the there's no or even the Royal Exchange because that is you know so extraordinary, uh, vast, and powerful. And so St Anne's is kind of... It's just kind of architecturally more friendly. Joe, isn't and it I
2: funny? <laughs> and so is Tom's. I mean, Tom's is a yeah. tiny little building dwarfed by all of its neighbours, and yet they're, they're both kind of cute, really, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I don't think you get planning permission today for Tom's. It's not wide enough. It wouldn't meet the building regs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and with that, we'll leave it for now. Thank you to Nigel and to Roger. Uh, there will be more history coming up of course if you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future you can talk to us on twitter at cottonmouthmcr or through email on podcasts at cityco.com cottonmouth manchester is available on itunes acast and soundcloud or direct from the source, source at cityco.com slash podcasts please re- leave a review if you like what you hear until next time